First John chapter 5 tonight. We'll see how far we get. We may we may finish up first John tonight. <clears throat> He's coming to the end of um, of his book, this uh, book of First John. Uh, there's going to be a couple more uh, things that that you may know, and uh, I've titled the series that you may know. As over and over again, uh, the Apostle John is saying, you know, I'm writing this so you would know this. I'm writing this that you have confidence in this. And that's really the idea of know. Uh, uh, I've really got this this really confidence in what I know. Now, keep in mind, we talked a little bit last week. Uh, uh, there in the first century, and John was dealing with it. Uh, the book of Colossians deals with it. There was a group that was rising up called the Gnostics. Um, the Gnostics, uh, and they're the ones that uh, kind of spiritualized everything. And, of course, the word Gnosticism is Greek. That's for knowledge. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's a whole group of people, a movement, really, of people that they almost take it as a pro as pride, as a badge of honor, that says, I'm agnostic. Well, if we put A in front of that word Gnostic, uh, it makes it not or no. And so if, not, if Gnosticism or Gnostic is um, knowledge, what is agnostic? No knowledge, and they kind of take pride in it. And the idea is, well, I just don't know. Uh, my mind's not settled. My mind's not made up, and uh, and so I'm on this forever journey. Now, by the way, there should be times where we don't know something, and it should drive us to want to know something, and uh, to to solve those problems. And I just can't imagine living a, a life in such a way that, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. We'll just kind of see how it all pans out at the end. And uh, uh, even um, Benjamin Franklin said something along those lines on his deathbed. Um, you know, basically uh, was asked about his you know, salvation or his soul. And, and he basically it said something along the lines of, well, I'll know soon enough. And uh, I'm sorry, it's too late to know then. Um, but uh, uh, but so, so, so as John's writing, and we looked at this last week, but uh, look at verse number, we'll just kind of, uh, to get back in the mind frame, look at, uh, look at verse number 12, 1 John 5, we'll start in verse 12. It says, he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. By the way, that's a, pretty much a direct quote from Jesus in the Gospel of John when, G, when he was talking there with Nicodemus. And, uh, and in fact, the last tag that Jesus says, but the wrath of God abideth on him for the person who is not saved does not have the Son. Verse 13, these things I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Get this now, he wants us to be confident. No, not to, not agnostic, but to, uh, to know that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So we talked about those, those two, the two uh, real thesis statements, the driving uh, uh, heart behind the whole book of 1 John. He says, I want you to know if you're saved, if you believe in the name of the Son of God, I want you to have confidence that you have eternal life. All right? And if you, uh, if you do not uh, know the name of the Son of God, I want you to know the name, believe in the name of the Son of God. And uh, by the way, it's so interesting how it says that there, the name of the Son of God. What's the name of the Son of God? Jesus. And what does Jesus mean? Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. God wants you to know that you can be saved, that you can know that you're saved, that you have eternal life. And what's the premise of eternal life? That, uh, that we are saved. Um, you know, it's sad uh, how common the thinking is that, well, you know, when... When this all world ends, or you know, when I die, well, I'll just be dead. It'll be over. And um, and and God says otherwise. God says otherwise through the resurrection. 
God said that there's life after death. God says otherwise uh, through the pages of Scripture, eternal life, uh, that you would have eternal life. And so as we get into the next portion, and I want we have a word of prayer, and we'll uh, dive into this. Lord, I do pray that you'd help us tonight as we unpack these last few verses of this, uh, this wonderful epistle we've been reading and studying. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd really touch our hearts uh, uh, as you, you've done mine many times in this next portion of Scripture. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to get... Um, uh, what your intent was. Uh, may the Holy Spirit guide and direct in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this next portion, and this is the confidence. All right, that's, ty- that's ty- uh, closely connected to this idea of knowing, having confidence. Uh, it's, a, it's a confident knowing. And this is the confidence that we have in Him, in the Son of God, that if you ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And Jesus said something similar in the Gospel of John. Uh, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. You shall ask what you will, it shall be done unto you. Now, this is a very interesting statement. Here's the formula. This is the confidence that we have in him. Here's the, what's, the, what's the root of the confidence? If you ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Now, this kind of brings a couple ideas about. One, uh, there, of course, it's, a, it's kind of a parameter on how we ought to pray. According to his will. So... How do I do that? How do I find the will of God? How do I know? Because, uh, by the way, don't I need to pray to find the will of God? Don't I need His guidance and His help? How can I, how can I need to know the will of God, to pray the will of God, to find the will of God? It kind of gets circular and kind of crazy, right? How, how, where do I find the will of God? In His Word, absolutely. And it's been a reoccurring theme, not only in 1 John, but, uh, uh, but really, if you, if you pay attention, and that's why it's been a reoccurring theme in my preaching, if you pay attention... Uh, it's all over the scriptures. It's all over the scriptures. That confidence in the word, in the in the in the promises, in the authority of the word. And so, so here's the idea: when he says that you may know, uh, notice again in verse 13, these things have I written unto you that you may know. Where did I find that confidence of knowing? It was written. These things have I written. So we see this pattern, right, unfolding. Similarly, we have this confidence that we ask anything according to his will. He hears us. So now we have to say, say this. And by the way, if we were to back up, remember in verse number um, uh, verse number 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. Verse 8, these three agree in one. What does that tell us? The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and God the Father will never disagree. They'll never go against each other. They'll never contradict. So if you if you have the Word of God telling you something that goes against what you feel is the leading of the Spirit of God, guess what? One of them's wrong. And it's not the Word of God. All right? It's what you've misconstrued as the Spirit of God, which we've already seen about um, um, uh, in the ch- beginning of chapter 4. Believe not every spirit. But try the Spirit, test the Spirit, run it through the pages of Scripture. The Word of God will never go against the will of God, and vice versa. And so, so the first thing we have to understand this, if God has spoken to it, anything that is revealed in Scripture, we can, we can find the will of God there. But what about you know those, those other areas that are just not specific? That God didn't write about. You know, I can't find a single verse in the Bible that says, you know, uh, you know, Aaron Richards, this is going to be your profession. Okay? Uh, this is how, who you're supposed to marry. This is how many kids you're supposed to have. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture, right? We don't have that specific revelation, so to speak. So what do we do about those things? 
What do we do about that? Well, I will, I will say this, and this goes into a, another conversation or topic about finding and knowing the will of God, but, uh, but we're going to be driven by principle. We're going to come back to the scriptures and, and search for principles, right? We have the precepts. That's the black and white, thou shalt, thou shalt not. But then we need to derive some principles. We need to know the heart of God on certain matters, right? Um, we've had some discussions, uh, you know, what does the Bible say about this? That may be somewhat ambiguous, right? Well, we can say, well, based on this principle and this principle and this principle, when you put these all together, I think we can come up with a very safe conclusion that this is our, the solution. Right. And we see that with a lot of things. You know, the Bible does not. I'll give you one. The Bible does not forbid smoking. Right. But let me just say, it's probably not a good idea for a Christian to smoke. And I could I could take you to several different principles that we can apply. Right. Uh, there's still, believe it or not, a big debate about drinking. All right. And uh, I actually heard a really good sermon one time on drinking. Um by a, uh, I think it was a Calvary Chapel pastor, some, uh, which is a group that does not take a strong stand on drinking on not, or not drinking. And uh, basically, without, without the whole argument about the, the wine in the Bible being grape juice or anything, going chasing those, those uh, down those trails, he basically took all the passages and kind of put them side by side, and he still came up with the conclusion that, look, this is probably not a good idea in any Christian's life. Right? There's no really one verse necessarily, although I think there's some verses that are pretty clear. Um, um, but, you know, sometimes we come across some things. You know, why is it that we would say, wait a minute, if the Bible says this, why are Christians, some Christians doing this? Or why are pastors doing this? And, and uh, we have to come back to this thing. Wait a minute, has God said something about it? Yes or no? And uh, that's the first test, right? Uh, there's some other tests. Is this good for me? And is this good for my testimony? Right? Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians. Hey, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient or beneficial. And uh, so there's some things we can look at as we pray and seek God. We pray according to His will. Okay? Uh, and so, um, of course, we got some guidance even in James uh, where he says, uh, you know, you have not because you ask not. And, uh, and it kind of goes on, what you do ask for, you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lust. In other words, uh, you know, there's some things that you're missing out on because you never even asked. And then you, the argument might be, no, Lord, we've been asking. Oh, okay. The things you're asking for is not in line with my will, but your lust. Right? And that's really the context of that chapter. And, you know, you lust and war and all this stuff and these desire to have and, and, and attain and so forth. And so, so we have to ask ourselves, have you ever had this, this thought or this question? I'm praying about something. I'm praying earnestly about something. But then I have this kind of nagging thing in the back of my mind. Is this selfish? Is this really in line with God's will? Because after all, and, and this, this can be brain-numbing when you kind of look at some passages. Remember the children of Israel? They were just complaining. And, oh, if we could just have the meat and the spices of Egypt. Oh, I remember what meat tasted like. I'm so sick of this heaven-baked manna. And uh, they were just complaining and complaining and complaining. So finally God gave them quail. Blessing or curse? It's almost like God shoved it down their throat. Right? So many, and basically the people overate, many of them died. Right? You think you want this thing, I'm just going to give it to you. Okay, well, I don't want that to happen. I think sometimes people have just like prayed so hard for something that wasn't God's will, so finally, okay, well, you can have it. Boom. You happy? It wasn't what you wanted, was it? You see? But then we have passages like, 
like Luke 11, where Jesus calls us to pray with importunity. Relentless, persistent in our prayer life, where we're just going to keep on knocking and keep on knocking. And he gives the illustration about the man who's uh, who's in bed with his children, and and the neighbor has a, a traveler late at night, has nothing to feed him. So he goes next door and knocks on the door and says, hey, lend me three loaves. And he says, I can't. I'm not going to get up. Uh, I'm already in bed with the kids. Go away. Come back tomorrow. You know, he says, leave me alone. And here's what Jesus said. He does not rise because he's his friend. He rises and gives to him as much as he wants because of his importunity. In other words, he would not stop bugging his neighbor. Right? Some of you, your kids have learned this trick. <laughs> not stop bugging till you give in. That's the context when Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. And then a couple chapters later, and he spoke a parable unto them that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And then he gives us the parable of the unjust judge. This judge didn't fear God, did not regard man. But this widow woman came day after day after day and just bugging him and bugging him about this adversary that she had that would not leave her alone. Finally, he gave in and, and to her request, not because he cared about her, not because he feared justice or feared God, uh, but because she would not stop bugging. And that, is, again, is the parable that God gives, Christ gives when he says, man, I'm always to pray not to faint. So how do I balance this out? On the one hand, God says, keep coming to me. I want to hear your prayer. On the other hand, we see an example of God... Uh, um, <laughs> giving them something they thought they wanted that they really didn't want, and now they have to reap the consequences of that. How do I balance this out? Well, the key here, I think, is this, according to his will. By the way, I think that's always a safe prayer to pray. pray. Even Jesus himself prayed a prayer, get this now, that was not in line with God's will, but brought it in line with God's will when he ended the prayer with this, nevertheless, not as I will, but thine be done. Think about that. Jesus is praying to the Father, Lord, if there's any other way, if there be any other way, nevertheless, boy, is that a, a safe way to pray. You see, if you're ever wondering, Lord, I, I really want this Lamborghini, and I, I think it's in line with your will, but, but if it's not, I desire your will. You know what that does? That gives God permission to say no. By the way, he doesn't need your permission, but you're letting him know I'm okay with that. You see? When you're praying for a spouse, praying for a job, praying for, for these big decisions, Lord, I'm okay if this doesn't happen. I'll be heartbroken, but I'm okay. I want your will more than anything else. You see? Pray according to his will. So there's, there's a couple of things this tells us. First of all, you can find his will in his word. Pray according to that. And really, that's kind of the idea of asking things in Jesus' name. According to his will, according to his authority, and, and and so, but then then here's the other side. Here's the faith side of it. Even at times, the blind faith side of it. It's trusting in whatever his will is, even if he doesn't tell you what it is. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There's a passage in uh, in Psalms, in Psalm uh, 37, verse number four. The Bible says this: "Delight thyself also in the Lord." And he'll give thee the desires of thine heart. Verse 5, uh, trust also in his, in, his, uh, in, um, yeah, in his ways, and he'll bring it to pass. That's an interesting passage, and I've heard people really use that as like a selfish psalm, right? 
Well, if you just do right, if you're in church and you're in your Bible and all these things, then that's the formula, and God's going to give you whatever you want. And I think we're completely missing the point of that verse. Delighting yourself in the Lord. You know what delighting yourself in the Lord does? It aligns yourself, your, your desires, your passions, your ambitions. It aligns them up with God's. Nearness is likeness. Hey, if you walk with wise, what happens? You're wise. What happens if you're walking very closely to the Lord consistently? I'll tell you what, you know, there's no greater friend. What happens? He starts formulating those passions and those desires. So there's a couple of things. On the one hand, if my desires are already godly, God delights in giving me my desires. On the other hand, if my desires are straight, then what's he going to do? He's going to give to me the desires. In other words, align my desires with him. What am I doing? I'm just praying according to his will. I'm just desiring according to his will. By the way, are there some things in the Bible that we can find that God desires? Absolutely. Did you know it's always God's will to pray for souls to be saved? You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says that God's not willing, the will of God, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I can pray for that, that prayer. It's never wrong to pray for souls. You see, there are some things we can pray passionately about because God has said so. In fact, Jesus, um, uh, one of the very few times Jesus requested a prayer, uh, gave his disciples really a prayer request. When they're in the garden there, he asked them, hey, would you guys pray for me? Pray, and he says, pray. I want you to watch and pray. And it really wasn't even for him. He just said, watch and pray. Change not to temptation. But then he does give them a prayer request uh, in another place. And he, tell, he says, he looked upon the multitudes. And they were scattered as sheep having no shepherd. And he looked to his disciples, turned to them, and said this, Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he might send forth laborers into his harvest. You know what we, can, we ought to pray for? More workers. More Christian workers. More missionaries. More preachers. More lay, uh, lay servants that are going to serve God uh, on the job, outside the job, in the church, and, and so forth. That's according to God's will. You see, so, so, so we can go on these, these searches, these hunts, if you would, to find the will of God. And God says, I want you to pray for that. I want you to pray for that. By the way, sometimes, you know, here's the, uh, I started a series on Sunday nights on Calvinism, right? One of the things that I would struggle, really, if I was a Calvinist, is this thing of prayer. Because at the end of the day, God's going to do what he's going to do. And all the verses on prayer in the Bible really become null and void with that theology. You know, there are times in the Bible where God said he was going to do something, but was waiting for them to go pray before he did it. Well, if God said he was going to do it, he's going to do it, right? He's, a, he's the God of his word. He's not a man that he should lie. And yet, he would wait for people to do it. Remember when God told Elijah, after it had been a famine for three and a half years, a drought, and, and he told Elijah, he says, all right, I'm going to send rain. Go tell the king it's going to rain. What did Elijah do? He didn't go get his raincoat. He took his servant and he went and fell on his face and started praying for the rain. Told his servant, go see if there's any rain. He goes, comes back. No, there's no, there's no clouds in the sky. There's no sign of rain. He prays again. He does this seven times. Finally, his servant comes back and says, well, there's a little cloud. And he says, all right, now go tell the king. If God already told him, why is he praying? You see, you know, sometimes I think this goes along even with the desires of our hearts. Sometimes God will give a promise. God will speak to you in a message. God will touch your heart on something. Hey, go pray about it. You know, um, 
there's a lot of things we can apply this to, by the way. And I think it really speaks to our trust in God. Do we trust him to keep his, his word? Do we trust him to fulfill his promise? Right. Right. I really think that's even what's behind, you know, when you think about this. Uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. In one place. But in another place it says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart, God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So do I have to say something? Do I have to just believe? Of course, the passage goes on, uh, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, but how shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? We understand that believing is what saves, but it's almost like that acknowledgement is claiming that promise. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He died on the cross for my sins. I believe that He rose again the third day, and I'm trusting in Him for that sacrifice for my sins. I'm saying that out loud, and I'm telling God, Lord, I'm claiming this promise for, me, for myself. You see? So here's the confidence that we have. Lord, I know it's your will. By the way, think about praying for your children. Is it God's will? I love what the Apostle John says in, in um, uh, I think it's in 3 John. I've got no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Right? Uh, uh, is it God's will that your children turn out for him? Train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Train up a child the way he should go when he's old. He'll not depart from it. I think it's a wonderful thing to plead uh, with God over your children. God, grab a hold of their heart. God, don't let them go. God, uh, I want them to desire you and, and just be pouring over them in prayer. It's God's will. And the authority of Scripture, and according to your will, God, arrest their attention. Grab a hold of their heart. Put a hedge about them that would cause them to stray. You see, these are things that we can find in Scriptures that will help us to pray according to His will. And what great confidence there is in that. There have been times when I've really wavered, is this really God's will that I'm praying for right now? And I'll promise you, there's no confidence there. Lord, I think this is your will. And uh, here's where I tend to find my confidence with this. I start praying against it. Lord, if this isn't your will, just close this door. Just make this go away. I prayed that. God's answered that, and I, I thank him for that. It looked like one time uh, uh, I was candidating for a church, and it looked like that door was going to open. My wife and I, we were ready to move our family all the way across the country from California to Pennsylvania, and uh, and it looked like this was like going to be a sure thing. Uh, so much so, I mean, we were already planning dates to get tickets and to fly out and spend a couple weeks with this church. And my wife and I, we just kind of had this unsettledness about it. And we started praying, Lord, close this door. If it's not your will, close this door. Don't even let our hearts get attached. Don't, don't let us meet the people. Just close this door. Then just out of the blue, one of the, the deacons called and he said, uh, he said, yeah, uh, we don't really feel like this is the direction anymore. And, uh, and I think what had happened was um, uh, one of his friends became available. And so it just kind of closed the door. And I was like, wonderful. Uh, God answered that prayer. Found it a little while later. There were all kinds of problems that were started unfolding in that church. Uh, the assistant pastor that had been there 15 years resigned. I mean, that's a long time to all of a sudden just resign with a new pastor and, and those things. And I was like, there's probably going to be some issues there. But um, but I thank the Lord that He closed that door. And uh, what a what a heartbreaking thing it would have been to move my family all the way across country and uh, just for uh, that rug to be pulled out from under us. But anyways, I think I spent enough time there. Uh, so we have this confidence. And we have in him, if we ask anything according to his will, he hear us. Verse 15. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we have the, uh, the petition that we desired of him. So it kind of reiterates it. We have the petition, and he's going to grant it. Uh, and by the way, sometimes the answer is not yes or no. Sometimes the answer is wait. And that's the hard one. That's the hard one, is to wait. 
Uh, Lord, I know this is your will. I know this is your desire. And you just wait. Um, I remember uh, um, I was down in Mexico uh, preaching a youth conference. And they had some really neat young people down there in, uh, in Baja, California. They have some wonderful things that are happening in some of the churches down there. And uh, while we were in Southern California, it was very easy to take a mission trip down there across the border of Tijuana. And it's actually harder to cross going there than coming back these days. But um, <laughs> we'd go down, and uh, there was a Bible Institute in Tijuana. And these, these young men training for ministry, they would stay in these little tiny rooms that they had there, and they would, uh, they would sit on these hardwood pews, and they would learn uh, hours and hours. Uh, me and another pastor, we... We taught them all day long, and they just never got tired. <laughs> they just wanted us to keep teaching. And we were running out of things to teach. I was like, that's about all I know, guys. Uh, um, but they just were eating it up. But these young people were so excited about serving the Lord. Many of them on Friday afternoon, as soon as like Institute would get out, they'd start hitchhiking to where they would serve on the weekends. And some of them would, would be far away with the church that they were serving in. One guy got hit by a truck while trying to hitchhike. Uh, different things that happened, and they just could not wait to get out of there. But I remember I was talking to one of the young men, and he was really debating on whether he should finish uh, Bible Institute or not and just go and start serving because where he was serving, the Lord was just blessing and everything. And and uh, and I just I love seeing the zeal and I love seeing the passion. I, and I just I remember telling him, I said, you know, I think the Lord's really going to bless you if you see this thing through. You're this close, you know. Uh, uh, follow follow your pastor's advice and the, your your counselors that are in your life. And I said they understand the ministry around here. They they're going to know what you need. And, and I, I told them I said, you know, be patient. And, and it's neat. A couple of those guys I've kept touch in touch with over, over the years on Facebook and. And they got like families now, and they're serving the Lord, and it's just—it's been really cool to see that unfold. But, uh, but, um, but sometimes waiting is uh, is is the toughest. I, I know this is God's will. I know where He wants me to go. And uh, well, now, so now there might need to be some training or some preparation along the way. And uh, we even see that in Scripture many times. Remember Joseph? God gave him a dream, right? But how long did he have to wait for that dream to come true? Uh, and you see this over and over. Abraham, I'm going to make of you such a great nation that your, your offspring is going to be like the sand of the sea. <laughs> You're a little late, Lord. <laughs> I'm an old man. Uh, and he had to wait, right? Uh, God was teaching him some things. Notice verse number 16. We're going to shift a little bit here. It says this. Again, in verse 14, the confidence. Verse 15, we know that this, this knowledge, this understanding. Verse number 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and, it, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he sh uh, shall pray for it. What a weird verse. So if you see your brother sin, a sin, and is not unto death, the implication is if he's still alive, it's not been unto death. Okay, I'll unpack that in just a minute. But if you see your brother sin, what does it say to do? If you see your brother sin... He shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. What in the world are we talking about here? I believe he's discussing, you're going to pray for him. Hey, if a brother be overtaken with a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such one with the spirit of meekness. Uh, you are to reach out to them. You are to give him life. Um, and speaking to him, but notice this phrase though: there is a sin unto death. 
I do not say that he shall pray for it. And I've heard a lot of different commentaries, I've heard a lot of different people talk, try to explain this sin unto death. I will say this, nobody knows for sure. Other than there's death and it's connected with sin. Romans 6, 23 tells us, written to believers in the context of sanctification, of, uh, of, of putting off the old man and putting off the unrighteousness and embracing righteousness and yielding your members as instruments of righteousness. Uh, that's the chapter that it says, for the wages of sin is death. Um, what is it? James tells us about the enticer. And, uh, and uh, you know, when, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. The end result of sin is always death. But there is a sin, it says, that leads to death. There is a sin unto death. What is this about? The Bible tells us in uh, Deuteronomy 6, you don't have to turn there, but uh, if you want to, you can turn to Psalm 19. I'm going to go there next. In Deuteronomy 6, and a couple other places that references something along these lines. Deuteronomy 6 and verse number 15. The Bible says this, For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you. And then it says, uh, uh, um, well, let me back up, verse 14. It says, Ye shall not go after other gods uh, of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against thee, and destroyest thee from off the face of the earth. So he says this, there's a line you can cross there where God, uh, you know, the warning to the nation of Israel there, where God will destroy you off the face of the earth. What a statement, by the way. It's not enough to just say he'll kill you. I mean, off the face of the earth, right? Um, this, there are sins in Scripture that are capital crimes. Remember David, when he... Um, when he sinned, how many capital crimes did David commit? You ever think about that? Well, he murdered. Is that a capital offense? Yeah. Uh, what about adultery? That's a capital offense, right? But God didn't kill him. That's interesting. David prayed a prayer in Psalm 51, and he said this. He said, Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. You know what we like to do? We like to approach Psalm 51 kind of in our dispensation, and uh, and we, we kind of approach it in the sense that, you know, God's not really after sacrifice. He just wants our heart. He wants a broken and contrite spirit. And there are some elements of truth to that, but you know what David was saying was, he says, else would I give it. There is no sacrifice for a capital offense. Else would he give it? Thou desirest not sacrifice. What did God desire? Uh, God laid out what his judgments were in Scripture. If you do this, then you need to do this. If you do this, you need to do this. If you murder, they need to take your life. There's nothing for you to do. So he says, I'm, I'm, I'm literally at the mercy of God. Thou desirest a broken and contrite spirit, O Lord, thou will not despise. He's now appealing to God's mercy, and, uh, and, and he falls on his face for God. I am broken before you. I'm at your mercy. And that's why, you know, that, that's when Nathan said to him that I've put away your sin. Wow. What an amazing, what an amazing thought. And so, so there are sins unto death by law. But there are sins unto death, I believe, spiritually as well. Look at Psalm 19. Wonderful psalm about creation, about the Word of God. He spends most of the psalm talking about the, the power of the Word of God. 
which leads to verse number 12. In fact, uh, uh, in verse number 10, talking about the, the scriptures, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover by them, by, by the statutes and judgments and so forth, uh, moreover by them is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them, there's great reward. He's saying, when I, when I walk in light of your scriptures, there is both warning from going off of track, but there's also rewards for following it, for, for walking close with it. Then it says, who can understand his errors? How do we understand our errors? The theme is always coming back to the Word of God, right? Um, Paul said, I'd not know sin, known sin, but by the law. There has to be something that exposes it. So how do I understand? Who can understand his errors? You know, it's amazing. People that come to Christ, they get this awareness, this awakening of how wrong and vile they've been in the eyes of a holy and just God. Um, uh, that's kind of what happened that sparked the, one of the great awakenings in America. As, uh, as uh, Jonathan Edwards preached, sinners in the hand, hands of an angry God. And uh, the report was that people would be gripping the pews in front of them, fearful of the ground underneath them opening up and hell swallowing them up. I mean, I mean, the terror of God was upon these people uh, and an awareness of their sin. Sometimes, sometimes it just so grips us when we're, you know, in light of Scripture. So he says, who can understand his errors? Well, the Scriptures are going to bring it to life. But get this now. Cleanse thou me, David said, of secret faults, from secret faults. What are secret faults? A lot of times people talk about, you know, all your secret sins, secret faults, things that are done in a closet, things that are done behind closed doors that nobody knows about. Uh, I do not believe that's what David's talking about here. I believe David's talking about sins that he is ignorant of. Who can understand his heirs, his own heirs? And the idea is, I don't understand all of my heirs. I don't understand all the times that I've sinned. Have you ever have you ever grown in your Christian life to a point where you look back at a time when you were saved, but maybe you were a baby Christian, and you realize the things you allowed in your life then? You were saved, but you're like, man, I can't believe I allowed that in my life, or I can't believe I tolerated that or engaged in that. And now as, as you've matured a little bit in your Christian life, it really you're kind of repulsed by it. Like, oh, I can't believe I let that be a part of me. Now, was it a sin back there? Were you aware it was a sin? Not really. I mean, there might have been something in you, but, uh, you know, I think about, uh, it's, it's really neat when I hear testimonies of people that, you know, hey, pastor, I realized, you know, this wasn't right, and we got this out of our house, out of our life. Uh, you know, I hear stories of people, you know, they, they emptied all their liquor bottles or different things, and it's like, you know, well, I didn't preach on alcohol. <laughs> Who told you this? The Holy Spirit told you this. You know, in the Word of God, as they're, as they're spending time with Him, and they're growing in grace. So what's he saying? Cleanse thou me of secret faults. There are things in his life that are secret to him. Uh, so, so, so those are sins that are just kind of uh, not obvious that that he's engaged in. And by the way, I think the ones that really get us sometimes are are uh, are a lot of those internal sins, a judgmental spirit, a critical spirit, um, uh, you know, uh, gossip, things that we tend to tolerate, uh, different things like that. They, they, they don't, we wouldn't come out and say they're sin. So uh, let's call it what David calls it faults. Yeah, these are faults. <laughs> Cleanse on me of secret faults. Now get this. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sin. Let him not have dominion over me. What would you think is a presumptuous sin? What does it mean to presume? I don't want to answer because it sounds presumptuous. What do you think it means to presume? Yes.
Yeah. Could we presume upon God's grace? Could we be presumptuous about God's goodness? I think the nation of Israel fell for that, didn't they? You know, we have this idea that because God hasn't struck me down, then it might, you know, maybe then he must be okay with it. Listen, can I say this? God's silence does not equal God's endorsement. Sometimes, sometimes God will let things go for a while, right? And uh, and I think we're reminded of that really eternal principle in Deuteronomy. I believe it's in Deuteronomy where, um, uh, no, it's got to be uh, Joshua, where uh, the two and a half tribes want to stay on the one side of the river, and uh, and they said we want to take up land here, and they said, well, you need to go and fight with your brothers. And uh, they said, okay, we will go fight with our brothers. And then when it's all done, we'll come back to our families on this side of the Jordan. And, uh, and Joshua said to him, he said, all right, we're going to trust you to keep your word. And he tells them, he says, uh, he says but, but if you don't do this, be sure your sin will find you out. And I think it's just one of those eternal truths, eternal principles, that uh, it's not just about fighting with your brethren in the promised land. It's uh, uh, in life. It's amazing how God um, finds us out. So we can presume upon God, but notice this, let them not have dominion over me. When you keep presuming over sin, you keep being presumptuous over your sin, you know what happens next? It has dominion over you. This is what we call an addiction. Well, one drink's not going to hurt me. You presumed. Well, I'm just going out with my friends. It's just a social drinking. You're presumptuous. Before long, it starts having dominion over you. And by the way, you can apply this to so many things. So many things become, can become addictions. What happens if we give way to something that it so has dominion over us? By the way, who's to have dominion over us? The Lord, right? We're to be His servants. So if something else is having control, what is what is uh, Paul said? I will not be brought under the control of anything. I need to bring my body into subjection so that nothing else will control me. The, word, the idea there is he's disciplining himself. This is one reason why I think it's healthy to, to have regular fasting. Because what are we doing? We're just disciplining ourselves a little bit. Cutting some ties of some things and, and our, those, those carnal physical appetites. And so, so he says this, I am not going to have, uh, you know, I don't want these things to have, be, have dominion over me. What happens when something is so taken over you that it has dominion over you? Notice what it says next. Then shall I be upright, if it doesn't have dominion over me, and then shall I be innocent from the great transgression. What in the world is a great transgression? It's the capital punishment. It's the capital crime. The idea, what David was saying was, if I allow these secret things to, to kind of, uh, lead to presumptuous things, and I'm just kind of presuming upon good, God's goodness. By the way, with David, think about David. Well, God didn't kill me when I killed Uriah. I wonder what else I can get away with, right? A little kid steals candy at a store, right? And that first time, their heart's racing, and they're just terrible. Oh, we get caught, we got, and they don't get caught. Them not getting caught is probably one of the worst things that can happen to them. Them getting away with it could be the worst thing that happens because the next time, it's a little easier. And then after a while, maybe they need to up the ante a little bit. It's weird. I've heard stories of people that, that weren't needy, but just had this need to steal something. And they just want to steal it, take things, right? Where did that come from? And where did that start? 
It's starting to have dominion over you. See, whether it be cigarettes or drinking or stealing or whatever, it's amazing the things that can grab a hold of us and start having dominion over us. But he says this, then I'll be innocent for the great transgression. In other words, if these do have dominion over him, he'll be guilty of the great transgression. Uh, in other words, he'll be given God reason to take him. I believe that's what the parallel passage in 1 John is talking about. The great transgression. So let's go back to 1 John and it says this. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. There is a sin unto death. There are things that we can allow into our lives that can push us over the edge to where God says I'm done and take us home. You say, well, I don't know. I think I might need some scripture for that. I'm so glad you asked. Look at, uh, look at 1 Corinthians. Now, by the way, a couple of these are historical instances that we're going to look at, but does not make this the rule. Because I do not believe God ever gives us specifics of what constitutes a sin unto death. He's the giver and taker of life. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. There was, of course, bickering going on in the church, so much so, and then there were heresies and everything. There were divisions. And, uh, you know, they were, they were uh, overeating, and they weren't caring for each other, and they were even getting drunk in the church. There's just so much stuff going on here. And uh, in the end of the chapter, he says, Terry one for another. The, the, the solution to this is wait for each other. And if anyone eats, let him eat at home. If you want to do those things, that's fine. Go do it at home. And that was a lot of what Paul was telling this church. Hey, if you if you got that blue light special, uh, I remember the blue light specials in Kmart. <laughs> if you got the if you got the meat that was on clearance because it was offered to idols, just go ahead and eat that in your home. We know it's nothing, but it might be a stumbling block to somebody else, right? And uh, you know those were some of the issues that were coming up. Well, they were doing all the stuff. They were coming to church for the purpose of showing off how much food they had. And then we have poor old Emily here who's carrying a child, and he said, "Oh, you didn't bring anything. You can't eat." And she's like, I'm so hungry, right? And, uh, and they're just stuffing their faces, right? And he's like, you guys think you're honoring the Lord in this? You think this is the Lord's Supper? This is not that, you know? And, uh, and by the way, it was supposed to be called the Agape Feast. And they were doing just the opposite. It was a selfish feast. And, uh, and so he, he, and then he tells them, and then you're going and taking the Lord's Supper with this, despising the Lord's body, and here's what's happened. You guys aren't even picking up on this. Because of this, many of you are sick and many of you have died. Remember those all those funerals? Paul's just telling them that's because of this issue. God was killing them. That's heavy stuff. Well, you know, that was way back then. You, you don't think God would do something like that today? Look at, uh, look at Acts 5. I like this one. Again, be careful how dogmatic you get on a historical fact. I'll tell you my commentary, why I think God did this, but the reality is the Bible doesn't actually tell us. But I don't think God did it just because there was a lie. Acts 5. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also... Uh, also being privy to it, and brought in uh, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost 
and to keep back part of the price of the land. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own in thine own power? In other words, you didn't have to give any of it, but you lied about it. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou didst not lie unto men, but unto God. By the way, that's a good verse about uh, the Holy Ghost being part of the Godhead. He said, you lied unto the Holy Spirit, and that was a lie to God. Verse 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came upon them all that heard these things. And the young men arose, uh, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. I wonder what his wife was doing with all that new money. We can only presume, but maybe she was spending it. I don't know. Um, maybe she was enjoying it. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, Why is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came out and found her dead and carried her forth. Uh, buried her by her husband. What a crazy day for that household. But it's interesting. Is God going to kill somebody today if they lie in church? He could. He's God. But is that the norm? Did this did a doctrine form right here? No. I'll give you my opinion, but it's only my opinion. And every other commentator on this passage, I promise you it's only their opinion. Okay? I believe this church in, in Acts 5 was experiencing such revival and God was doing such mighty things that this one couple and the sin that they are involved in, lying to the Holy Ghost, about something that was just, it was a pride thing. Think about it. There were, no one was commanded to sacrifice. No one was commanded to give. They, they did it led of the Spirit to go ahead and just sell their property so that they had all things common because some were experiencing great persecution. People were losing jobs, losing homes, all this stuff. And, uh, and so they were, they were really taking care of one another. And so they come in and they said, I want everybody to know, the apostles, I want you guys to know that we sold our land. We got rid of all of our land and here's how much we sold it for. They could have said, we sold our land and were given half to the church. That would have been a wonderful gift. If any of you did that, I'd say that'd be a wonderful gift. You wouldn't have to try to impress me by saying, and this is all of it. That's basically what they did. This is all of it. And God killed them. I believe whatever that heart behind that was, was so have dampered the, the moving of the Spirit in this church that God just took them out of the way. I've heard, I've heard interesting stories. Uh, missionary uh, Wayne Shimish, missionary to Thailand. He's from um, Australia. He uh, he was in Thailand and um, you know reaching reaching the people there, uh, mo mostly Buddhist. And uh, and he had witnessed uh, to a couple guys and they listened intently and uh, and uh, they made a profession. But that night they went down all through the town and they're telling everybody. Hey, that missionary said that, uh, that, that if you believe in this Jesus guy, that, uh, that he'll forgive you of all your sins, and you can just go on and live however you want. You can do whatever you want, and they're just going on and on, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. 
and preaching that as gospel, telling everybody, you can just live however you want, you don't have any guilt anymore, and you can just go on sinning. And I mean, that's this kind of the, what they're uh, telling everybody. And it was just shocking to people because they're very superstitious people. And how could that be true? How could this be that God? Well, those two guys got shot that night. And after all that noise that they had spread, there was this very uneasiness and fear that came upon like that whole community. And it was the week that Brother Shemesh was actually leaving uh, Thailand for a little while, and he was going to the States and uh, going to a, a conference and then uh, following up with some churches. But, uh, but it was really kind of interesting. And so some of the people that were there in that church that he started uh, had a lot of opportunities to minister to folks uh, as these two people uh, died after after speaking like that. It's kind of interesting. So you have to ask this question: Why would there be a sin unto death? We've seen the wages of sin is death. We've seen that uh, that that sin is finished, bringing forth death. Why why would there be a sin unto death where God just takes somebody? I can't really give you the why, and I don't think anyone else can. But let me give you an illustration, and I'll tell you why I think. And my illustration is going to come from Judges. What is God's purpose for a believer? I'm sorry? To serve Him? Okay. What is His, uh, what is his involvement in a believer's life? What is He purposed in every believer's life? Relationship with Him to glorify God? Conform us to His image. It's the Spirit that works in us to sanctify us, to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. What happens if we are so resisting the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Sometimes we might say, was that person even ever really saved? Can I just say, that's not ours to say. Oh, by the way, let me just say this, since you brought Calvinism. Number five of Tulip, do you remember? Perseverance of the Saints, good job. You came from a Reformed church, didn't you? <laughs> perseverance of the saints. Those who are really elect or those who are really saved will persevere to the end. Well, what about these then that will die? Uh, what does it say? If you see your brother, sin is sin, it's not unto death. But if it is a sin unto death, interesting. Anyways, there's holes all throughout. We'll talk about that on Sunday nights. Could it be that God might get more glory from a hard-hearted, backslidden Christian's life if he takes them than if he lets them stay and blaspheme him through their testimony. Here's the story of Samson. You're familiar with it. Samson's been captured. He gave in to lust, and that made him spiritually weak and spiritually compromised. You say, how do you spiritually compromise? Listen, there was a spiritual connection between him and God and his hair. For him, it was hair, okay? And uh, what did he do? He, he made a game of it. He teased Delilah until he finally told her, yeah, it's my hair. And then she caused the men to cut his hair, and he lost all his strength. So here he is. And, um, and uh, let me find the passage here towards the end of the chapter. So here's Samson, and uh, and they're, he's um, they've gouged out his eyes, and they're having this big party. They bring him up to the party to kind of make a show of him. And uh, in verse 26, and Samson said unto the lad that let, that uh, held him, 
uh, by the hand, suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. So he's asking him, he's saying, hey, take me to the, the strong pillars, I want to rest against them. And the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and they were upon the roof, and um, th about 3,000 uh, 3, men and women, and beheld, beheld while Samson made sport. So they're there, and he's the spectacle. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. By the way, at the end of his life here, he's still not really concerned with God. I want to avenge of my eyes. He's just, he, he astonishes me. He's one of the judges of Israel, okay? Verse 29. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood, and on which it was borne up, of the one on the, his right hand and of the other with his left. Uh, his left. And Samson said, Lord, or excuse me, uh, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself, uh, uh, excuse me, he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people um, that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. Think about that now. What was, what was Samson's main task as a judge of Israel? He, uh, that was part of it, but, but, uh, but this particular judge was to fight off God's enemies. Think about Samson, right? Battle after battle. I mean, one time the donkey jawbone, right, took took out all those Philistines. I mean, this guy was a warrior, and nobody knew. You know, all the cartoons, the kids' cartoons. He's all buff and ripped and everything. Uh, that was not him, because they could they could not figure out where his strength was from. If he was that big, they would say, "Well, that's well, obviously he's Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was young." Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, they couldn't figure it out. He was probably you know an average guy. And, uh, and yet he was, uh, you know, slaying all these Philistines. What was he doing? He was judging God's enemies. So the death of a Philistine was a victory to God. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, these were God's enemies. So if I can spiritualize this story just a little bit, if you'll allow me, what happened was he won more victory for the Lord in his death than he did with his life. I think I shared with you the story of my sister. I remember I was talking with her, and I think she'd be okay if I shared this story. But she was uh, uh, really running from God. She was uh, addicted to drugs. And, uh, and I remember telling her, you know, she, she'd made a profession of faith. And I said, listen, I said, God's not getting glory from your life. You're running from God. You're fighting his moving in your life. And I said, if God let you die, I said, I'd probably preach your funeral. You'd probably have all your lost friends there, and they'd have an opportunity to hear the gospel and get saved. And I said, have you given God enough reason to keep you alive? It may not be theologically sound, but it's what God put in my heart to share with it. Here's Samson. He got more, gave more glory to God in his death. Let me die with the Philistines. Then he glorified God in his life. Could a Christian get to such a point where there's no more glory they can really give to God and he just take him home? In fact, it would probably save God's character and reputation if he just took him home. Because some Christians are doing that much damage to God. And I just can't help but wonder. I can't tell you what it is. Do I think that if you go and, you know, cut somebody off in the, in the road, road rage, God's going to kill you for that? I'm not talking like that. 
You know, some people try to take passages like this, really try to control people. But, you know, God does not tell us what these sins are and how far they have to go. But that's, that's the best conclusion, just looking at some passages in Scripture. The unity in the Church of Acts, the unity in the Church of Corinth, Samson. And when we think about Christians becoming obstinate, right? Think about the man that was challenged to give uh, church discipline to in, in 1 Corinthians 5. He tells them, turn over such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved. If somebody physically dies, is his, could his spirit still be saved? Absolutely. This guy who's been church disciplined, if he doesn't repent, would it be too far for God to allow Satan to just go ahead and kill him? I think God could do that. Interesting passage, isn't it? There is a sin unto death. I say, don't pray for that. Don't pray for that one who is uh, who is dealing with that. And by the way, we can't judge what sins a sin unto death, what isn't. All he knows is if you're still alive and you're living in sin, I'm going to pray for you. And when God takes you, I can't pray for you anymore. We're not Catholic. We're not praying for dead saints or two dead saints. We're praying for you while you're alive. But uh, what a challenge, though. You think about running out away from God, running away from God's will. Remember back in where we started, this is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. That's a great way to live, by the way. But if you're running from God's will and you're outside of His will and you're doing your own thing, you're saying, God, you're resisting the, the, the chastening of God and you're resisting the um, uh, uh, sanctification through the Holy Spirit. You're resisting all those things. What kind of confidence are you going to have in your prayer life? Not going to have much at all. In fact, you're probably not going to have a prayer life. That's what got you in the mess in the first place. But I think we'll go ahead and end there. I was going to go, try to make it to the end, but um, uh, some good stuff there. Um, verse number 17, all unrighteousness is sin. So what's the category of this? All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin. One of those sins is unto death. 